Welcome to the Future of Internal Communication podcast. I'm Jen Sproul, CEO of the Institute of Internal Communication. Our organisations face an onslaught of challenges across the social, economic, political and environmental spectrum. The systems we've used to support 21st century ways of life are weakening. The way we work requires dramatic transformation in response to these challenges. Internal communication is a crucial function that helps organisations achieve lasting change. This podcast explores the intersection between internal communication and the future of work. Every conversation is curated to help internal communicators better understand the risks and leverage opportunity. We really hope you enjoy listening. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Future Internal Communication podcast. I'm Dominic Walters and I'm joined as usual by Jennifer Sproul and Kat Barnard. Today, we're very grateful to have Joe Ryle with us, who is the campaign director for the Four Day Week campaign. The Four Day Week campaign, as I suppose the name suggests, is campaigning in the UK for a 32-hour, four-day working week. Crucially, I think, with the same level of pay as people may get now for five days. Joe has a, a very impressive background in campaigning and communication, working at the moment for media and uh, as media and comms lead for the think tank Autonomy, but also as a former advisor to the shadow chancellor, John McDonnell, and a Labour Party press officer. Also, Joe and I did meet at a family do a little while ago over, over a sausage roll, which is how we got chatting about some of the internal communication aspects of the potential move to a four-day week. So, Joe, welcome. And let me start off, because I guess for some people listening, many of whom will be internal communicators or involved with internal communication, they may start to see some messaging issues here. That For some, it may seem counterintuitive that as, as a country, we're, we're suffering from low productivity and also a skill shortage, and it's uh, difficult for many organisations to get enough people. So it may seem counterintuitive to be talking about basically doing less work. So it would be good to start off by giving us some ideas about the origins of the four-day week campaign, please. Yeah, sure. And um, thanks for having me on. Um, so, I mean, it's been a, essentially a long-standing call of the trade union movement. It's, you know, it's a move to a four-day working week. And even President Nixon in America in the 1960s was calling for a four-day working week. So it is an idea that has been around for a while. But we've reached this moment where we're, we're almost exactly 100 years later from moving from to the kind of nine-to-five, five-day working week, which is still, you know, the standard way of working across the Western world and wider world. And despite the fact that, you know, the economy has transformed since then, you know, the world of work has transformed since then, and we're still, for some reason, um, it's not clear to me why, um, we're still wedded to this quite rigid and outdated model of work, this nine-to-five, five-day working week. And so... You know, campaigners and others, you know, have been arguing for the last five to ten years for, for a shorter working week, for a four-day working week. And what's exciting for us now um, is that we're starting to see what looks like the kind of early stages of, of companies beginning to adopt this. You know, the kind of the, the early pioneers, we like to call them. Um, and, and actually in the UK, you know, hundreds of companies doing it. So hopefully, um, you know, our aim is for the four-day working week to be normal way of working by the end of this decade. And I hope we're at the very beginning of that transition. Now, I know, Joe, as we're broadcasting in February 23, we're a couple of weeks away from the full results of your your big pilot, if you like, with lots of organisations. And so it would be good just to go back over some of the key benefits that you see uh, and maybe have seen already from the pilot, the four-day week bringing 
business and, and employees. You know, wherever we've seen the four-day week trial across the world, and, you know, there's been many pilots and trials in many countries, Iceland, um, New Zealand, Spain, uh, Scotland, the Scottish government now talking about a four-day week pilot, um, and kind of big companies like Microsoft in Japan, Unilever in, in, in both New Zealand and Australia. Wherever we've seen the four-day week trial, it seems to be a win-win for both workers and employers. And just to explain that a bit more, the win-win is, is on the one side, you know, the well-being of workers is going up. So workers are better rested, they're enjoying life more, they're more fulfilled. They're also then coming back into work, feeling more motivated. And that's where a lot of these productivity gains are coming from. That's the other side of it. You know, the results from all these trials and pilots are showing that well-being is going up and so is productivity. People are, workers are getting just as much work done in four days as they were doing in five, or in many cases, actually, you know, being more productive, getting more work done. And yeah, it, it's quite staggering, you know, and I can understand why people, you know, think it's sort of counterintuitive, but actually when you step back and you think, you know, if you're burnt out, if you're, if, you know, if you're lacking sleep, if you're, you're not rested, um, and therefore, you know, you don't have, you, you also don't have much time, much of a work-life balance to enjoy the other parts of life, um, then you're not going to be very motivated at work. You're not going to be performing very well, you know, very well in your job role. And, you know, I would argue that's no way to run an economy, you know, kind of burnt out workforce that's lacking any kind of enough time to kind of live and so you know that's where we're starting to see some of these exciting trends coming from and, and last point for me and i will pass over but it'd be just interesting to get insight into some of the cultural aspects because again you could argue uh, all the stuff you talked about burnout and lack of engagement can be caused by numerous factors but one of them is going to be you know you've got bad leadership and you could argue well if you've got bad leadership on five days you could easily just have bad leadership over four days and so what have you seen in terms of shifts in culture and uh, the benefits of that? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think what the four-day week does is that, you know, it puts the focus on output and effect, you know, effectiveness as an organisation. You know, what is your effective output is one of the first things that we ask companies moving to a four-day week. And in some cases, it's, it's, it does surprise me. Some organisations just don't, have, don't really know which I think is, is a bit worrying. Um, but, you know, once you focus on that, once you focus on output and um, ensuring that you're meeting the kind of goals of your organisation and, and prioritising work, work streams and workload around that, then you quite quickly see, you know, start to see areas of work that perhaps aren't that important, perhaps don't contribute to those you know, wider goals for organisations. And so we, you know, we are seeing organisations that have moved to a 40 week, and again, with the 60 companies that have taken part, you know, they're working much more effectively, they're working much more efficiently, they're streamlining the way that they work and the things that they prioritise. And you know, under that model, we're finding it quite easy to achieve what they were achieving before on five days or more. You know, in many cases, it's bringing staff together. They're working more cohesively, working more coherently. And actually, you know, is a bit of a kind of boost for the organisation. Amazing. Thank you, Joe. It's so fascinating to hear about it. And I hadn't realised actually the origins of this, that you say it's a 100 years of trying to campaign, but it just feels like everything's really sort of moving in that impetus, I guess, for that is really, really changing. And you know, we all as internal communicators, listeners, recognise burnout, fatigue, you know, how do we drive that sense of productivity and motivation? And I'm quite interested by what you said as well about some of the pilots as well around how organisations are actually measuring productivity. And I know no one can see me, but I'm doing the um, quote marks as I, as I talk, which I think is we get stuck in that complexity. But we can all acknowledge when we listen as well that work has changed so radically in the last three years and maybe that's that's done it but it's changed for the what and even the why 
And I guess you said you've got 60 organisations that have gone on the pilot, which is the biggest pilot, you, I think you've said that, for the four-day week. And actually you talked about how it benefits with that employee, that productivity, that motivating factor. And actually if organisations just prioritise, it can really revolutionise and streamline the organisation. And as you've gone out there with the pilot, I'm intrigued to know whether it's from the employee side or from the organisation side, why do you think that demand after 100 years has suddenly shifted? Is it been the, the pandemic effect or is there a bigger issue going on here? And is that demand coming more from the organisations that feel like they need to get ahead? So therefore, that's the reason why they're investing, to be a better employer. Or is it because actually the employees have got more power now, so they're demanding this kind of change within the old traditional confines of what is work? Hmm. I mean, I mean, firstly, you know, the COVID pandemic has certainly been a catalyst for, you know, totally rethinking the world of work and how we work and, you know, potentially exposing some maybe outdated practices and, you know, what, what was possible or what was, you know, even comprehensible, you know, before the pandemic, you know, has shifted almost overnight, you know, we saw, you know, most of the workforce working from home at one period of time, you know, that was unimaginable before the pandemic. And I think that kind of, focus around flexibility and yeah remote working has in some ways opened the door towards ideas like a four-day working week you know as I say it has been a call that's been around for a while um but yeah and and I think looking at the 60 companies that we've got taking part you know I think for these early pioneers it it has actually been very much kind of management led led from the top top down and that's you know that's been great you know having that that buy and that commitment from managers and directors to you know implement something that is good for their staff but also Something that they see is a kind of big shift in the way that they work that, you know, as part of kind of embracing this, this kind of future of work that we're all striving for. You know, having said that, you know, that, that with any kind of big changes like this, there's always going to be resistance from employers. And I think, you know, the, what we have seen as a result of the COVID pandemic is uh, workers have had a taste of, of greater freedom, greater autonomy at work. And, uh, you know, the signs are that they want more of that, you know, all the kind of polling shows that, you know, flexible working is very popular, four-day working week, no loss of pay, very popular, you know, is something that people want. Um, so that, you know, there will be some natural resistance to that, I think, from employers. And so we are, you know, part of our campaign is, yes, working with, you know, those companies and those bosses that are ready to implement this and kind of taking them through the process, you know, reassuring them that it is going to be good for their business as well as good for the employees. There's also going to have to be, you know, if we're talking about a shift across the economy, we want to see a four-day working week as the normal way of working by the end of this decade. You know, there is going to have to be kind of bottom-up approach as well. We, we are going to have to see, you know, workers demanding this as well. And so we do support workers in, in doing that and kind of organising within their workplace to demand that from bosses. Um, so it, it does go, yeah, it does, does go both ways, really, both bottom-up and, and top-down. It's interesting to say as well that it's it, it's been so management-led, particularly with your pilots and I love that, you know, that 10-year 10, 10 ambition. And I wonder as we walk into this year as well, I don't know whether anybody else has felt this on the podcast, but suddenly from some organisations, perhaps you know, those more traditional ones, that command and control culture that we've been trying to get rid of feels like because it's coming back a little bit more because there's that feeling of lack of control, lack of seeing anything. And so do you think it's going to, and I'm interested to see how you talk about the economy in 10 years time. Do you think there is more we can do to drive up and make this fundamental change? What do you think is the big catalyst, particularly when those big employers may be retrenching a little bit on, on what was, you know, pre-pandemic perhaps more freedom and trusted ways of working. I mean, I think you're right. I think there is a bit of a battle going on. I think, you know, that is 
going to play out over the next couple of years. But I think it's a battle that, that needed to be had. You know, I, I think that um, for too long, you know, the kind of power lay too heavily in the power of bosses and, and company directors, you know, who are now, let's face it, you know, in many cases desperate to hold on to staff. You know, staff are looking around for better conditions. They want more flexibility. They want better pay. And, you know, that does give workers more power, essentially. You know, it's probably partly why we're starting to see a lot of kind of strikes in the trade union movement as well. And, and, and you know, when companies are desperate to hold on to staff and we know, you know, job recruitment, job retention is difficult at the moment, then you know, policies like a four-day working week are one of the best things that could be offered. And if, if you're going to, you know, be, be seen as serious about kind of holding on to your staff, you know, attracting new talent to an organisation. So I think we have noticed that shift over the last year, you know, whereas a year ago, most companies moving to a four-day week, you know, were sort of, they kind of bought into the well-being and productivity arguments. Whereas now, actually, in the last year, there has been a shift where most companies we see who are credit for our organisation, because we also run an accreditation scheme that recognises companies that have done it. You know, the, the number one reason is, is you know, job recruitment, job retention, that they're, they're worried about losing staff and they want to offer something that will, that will keep them there and keep them motivated. So it has been a shift. So we see in the external environment a range of forces that are converging that are forcing organizations to think differently about how they organize themselves and how they adapt and respond to increased market volatility and ambiguity and we hear a lot about agility you know, both as, I guess, an operating framework and as a mindset. And having looked at the future of work as a topic for the last six years, Joe, I'm really intrigued by, firstly, the pace at which things have now started to unravel as a consequence of covid overlaid by the war in Ukraine, I'm really interested in what's going on in the labour market itself in the UK and this very tightly squeezed labour market and requirement for employers to kind of wake up and smell the coffee that they should have smelt a long time ago and recognise that they cannot afford to keep losing good people because they don't have adaptive, modernised working practices And I see the end of nine to five as being quite a good thing and something that by the end of this decade, I wonder whether we'll actually, you know, we'll probably look back on nine to five as hopefully some kind of antiquated thing. But equally, I am mindful of the fact that organisations seem to be showing a capacity for saying one thing and then doing another. So in the instance of hybrid working, saying that they support it and then tacitly making insinuations that workers that go back to the office will be better recognised and rewarded and so on and so forth. It's a tough one, isn't it? Because while demand for more flexible ways of working has been on the increase and it is excellent, excellent news that your Um, seeing an uptick in demand for the four-day week and encouraging data coming from the trials. What do you foresee as being the trend for this? How 
might demand for the four day week kind of morph into ever more increasingly fluid ways of working to your mind? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, we've always said as well that, you know, the four day week cannot be implemented overnight. You know, you can't implement something as big as this overnight. There has to be a kind of transition process to get to getting there. If we're talking about at scale, you know, an entire economy moving to it, which we have seen, you know, other economies, Iceland and others getting quite close to, you know, a four day, 32 hour working week. Um, so it's going to be a transition to get there. Um, and, and, you know, that, that, yeah, it's going to involve sectors implementing that in, in, in quite different ways. You know, there are, there are some sectors where, you know, it's more complex to implement. And so there, there may be cases where, you know, it's kind of, what's the roadmap to a four-day week? So maybe it's kind of, in some sectors, it's a kind of shorter working week. You cut the hours, you know, one year, the next year you cut them, you know, further. So it's not a kind of like overnight hard stop, if you see. So it's like kind of makes it makes the transition easier so that, you know, there may be a transition process to get there. But probably, you know, there is going to be a moment where we do see a kind of domino effect, you know, and I think that's where suddenly maybe those that are kind of being resistant to it or unsure about it will suddenly be like, hang on, everyone's doing this. We, you know, we cannot look serious and still be offering a kind of nine to five, five day working week because they're just, you know, we're going to look like we're kind of dinosaurs, you know, to Jacob Rees-Mogg kind of arguments, you know, where kind of this, this idea that we just need to be, you know, working all the time in the office, you know, for no good reason, really, um, is going to look very outdated. And, when we think about automation and new technology still to come, you know, and, 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 and these are, you know, these are kind of designed in many ways to kind of improve productivity and ideally free up workers to have more free time, you know, the kind of automation and new technology should be. And the kind of historic argument for them was that it would, it would give workers more freedom to have that more free time, have that leisure time, but that hasn't really happened. You know, like we've, over the last few decades, productivity has increased quite a lot um, in the UK as well. But none of that's really been passed on to workers in terms of more free time, um, which is a is a real is a real problem, you know. And I, that's why we we say quite a lot, you know. We're like we're long overdue an update. We like we're kind of almost owed a four day working week because all of those productivity gains in the last few decades essentially, you know, have largely gone to to kind of company profits you know, improve company profits. And, and I think that's why there's a bit of a kind of pushback now, you know, workers have, have seen that. People can feel that they're working harder, you know, they kind of even just take the kind of smartphone, you know, like the emails coming in all the time, they're always applying constantly to them. The Zoom calls, we're always on Zoom calls, we're always doing more meetings and more emails than we were before. You know, we, we are more productive than we were, but we're still, for some reason still, which, which to us makes no sense, we're still working the same hours. So yeah, so I think, it, you know, I think it'll be a transition to get there, you know, I do think that a shorter working week is inevitable anyway, because automation and new technology means there is going to be a diminishing amount of work available anyway. So the kind of smart way of dealing with that is to give everyone shorter hours and that will share the work more equally across the economy. So I do think it is inevitable. Um, but, you know, we'd like to see, see it sooner. We know we'd like to see, see us starting to get on with this now because we know, it will t- you know it's going to take at least five years to implement. Yeah. So apologies if this puts you on the spot, but I just as you were talking, I was thinking, oh, it's, you know, if we get to the point of a four day week, it does fundamentally reshape the nature of society. And suddenly two thoughts sprung to mind. 
interestingly, some of the most stressed workers within the UK workforce, and presumably you guys have thought about this to some extent, what parameters might get set out for education first, and then also nursing and medical care, because obviously those things don't end. You know, they are persistent. If you need hospital attention, then you presumably need some form of 24-7 care. I've not really thought about the knock-on effect to education. The provision of education has been mapped onto a standardised five-day work week for an industrial nation. What's your thinking, if any, for both those two cohorts? Because presumably they are quite significant professions also. So, yeah, so, I mean, yeah, you've highlighted there two of the kind of more complex um, sectors to implement this in. For schools, you know, we have done research into four-day week for schools. I mean, there's essentially two ways of doing it. One being that, you know, kids and teachers do four days and so the kids have an extra day off, which... Obviously, in the short term, as things stand now, would would present you know some some childcare issues. Um, but in the longer term, you know, would lead to parents needing to have a four day week as well. So you can start to see how that kind of triggers again a sort of domino effect, where you kind of start to see a four day week roll out, ripple out. Um, the other one is, and we've started to see some schools experiment with this. It's kind of four and a half day weeks or four day weeks where teachers are doing four days, but kids are in five days, and so there's less teaching time on the on the sort of the Friday, but there's kind of extracurricular activity. So there's a a second way of doing it. I I think there's actually, personally speaking, this isn't the campaign position yet, but I think there actually is a strong argument for getting in four days from a kind of learning and kind of, um, yeah, I think having time, extra time out of of the classroom is probably actually a good thing. And there there is actually, um, there's a a couple of thousand schools in the US that have started beginning to move uh, to a four-day week. it's, it's like really spreading out there. And it, it came because, again, because of the job retention issue, they were just struggling to hold on to any teachers. Um, it's kind of like mid, Midwest America and a couple of states there. There's a couple of thousand schools that have done it. And the, the evidence I've seen on that shows, you know, that there's been absolutely no impact on the kids' education. It hasn't improved. It hasn't gone down either, you know. There's been no impact by them being in school one day less. I think there is a case to be made there. And, and the kind of cost, the cost side of it is less of a you know, is less important. It's it's not as relevant um, because, there's, you know, there's no extra cost there. The NHS is a trickier one. You know, they would, they would certainly have to be, you know, some government involvement and, and potentially government investment in making this happen um, in the NHS because you can't close hospitals on a Friday in the same way you can with schools. Obviously, hospitals have to remain open 24-7. Um, but, you know, when we think about every single industry in the UK, what is the sector where, you know, most workers are burnt out, stressed, overworked, leaving, you know, the kind of the number one reason why, why staff are leaving is because of the lack of work-life balance. If you look, look at all the surveys, you know, it is, the, it is the NHS and that is causing huge problems. There was, there was a report out last week saying that um, actually kind of burnout was, was a bigger, um, burnout and lack of work-life balance was a bigger reason for staff absences compared to covid so that it, we definitely need to look at this holistically. You know, it's like the, the current situation doesn't work. It doesn't work. It's like, you know, and, and so... Uh, no, I suspect as is mostly the case, actually, you know, the private sector tends to trailblaze and pioneer new ways of doing. And eventually, you know, government legislation catches up. But actually, you know, just 
thinking through the education conundrum and the healthcare conundrum, both sectors are also in desperate need of reform. You could ask many educators and many parents of children that actually probably one of the most harmful effects of education as it is provided in the 2020s is that it is overtly didactic and children aren't given enough opportunity to operationalise what they've learned or to apply what they've learned in practice. It's just far, far too instructive and not actually helping children in a way that is optimal for them or society or the people that are teaching them. And, And similarly, you know, I think one of the failings in healthcare at the moment is that it has been so commoditized and so transactionalized that there isn't enough time spent with patients to understand their case histories in a way that is optimally beneficial to the patient and ultimately the healthcare sector. Because if you actually took the time at the front end, you wouldn't have the cost and the burden of ill health at the back end. So I think all of these things kind of do interconnect with one another. I just think it's interesting because we know that there will be listeners today who are coming from public sectors who perhaps are thinking, well, that's all well and good, but that's not going to work here because da-da-da. But I think, you know, all of these things, no major and worthwhile societal systemic change is going to be straightforward, is it? But we do have to think very differently and we do need to demonstrate that we're you know looking at as through as holistic a lens as possible so it is really helpful to to just you know kind of chew the fat on these areas I think so thank you. So Kat you gave me a nice link in there where we talked about holistically and I think we can all agree, listening to you, Joe, as well, what, what's clear is there are contextual challenges. There are some systemic challenges that we need to take a huge step back from. And I always remember somebody once saying to me as well, as if you could sell time as a commodity, you'd be the richest person on the planet. And that's what we're playing with here is the essence of time, whether that's in what we do, how we do or what we want and how we get it back as well for our own personal selves. But Going back to that holistic piece, and you know, obviously our listeners are, are, are many people in the field of internal communication and, and their role has, has changed significantly in the last decade or so and you know, moving away from, from that broadcast. But what they're concerned with is how do I go about creating, how do I enable great cultures because we know that you know, the right environments engender good work. How do I help support well-being within my people? How do we drive forward the purpose and the values of our organisation so people feel what they say and what they do are lived experiences. But they're also there thinking about, well, how do I, um, my job as well as to make sure people feel informed, they understand the role and how do I connect and communicate, which is often too much. You know, we're burdened with time, but our, you know, we're how we work, but also our communication is, is really noisy. So I guess my question to you is thinking about that holistic view for a minute, we understand there are individual complexities, but taking that step back, I guess the main considerations from an internal communication point of view, any organisation should consider, what are the kind of, I guess, the top things to take about when you're thinking about putting this in for that holistic approach? What would be your, your top tips, I guess? Firstly, you know, if we're talking about all the different sectors, you know, it should really be led by those sectors. You know, we should, we, we do need to see industry bodies leading this transition and really kind of 
working through all the kind of barriers, you know, thinking about it holistically. Um, but for me, it's also, you know, it's where do we want to be in 10 years time and how do we get there? Um, because, you know, like this is an acute issue for the UK. We, you know, UK workers put in the longest full-time working hours um, compared to any EU country except for Greece while having one of the least productive economies in comparison. So like all these long working hours we're putting in aren't making us very productive, you know, and all the kind of tables show that, you know, you've got France, Germany, Netherlands, other countries, but they're working less hours on average, they're more productive. Um, so it's like, that hasn't worked for a very long time. And you know, there's, there's been questions for decades about productivity puzzles and how do we solve that? And it's like, whatever we've done and tried hasn't really worked. So maybe we need to try something else. And the evidence is very strong. It does suggest that, you know, reducing working hours is going to improve productivity. But it's, yeah, it's thinking about where do you want to be in 10 years time? And for me, that is, you know, that is a shorter working week. I think um, four day weeks, the first step is a less kind of um, connected, uh, you know, with, with a kind of right to disconnect. Uh, so we don't, you know, there's been laws implemented across Europe where people have the right not to reply to emails after kind of 5 p.m. And I think that's important. I think we need to be less carrying around our work with us all the time um, for jobs where, you know, using a smartphone is relevant. Um and it's a world where, yeah, we prioritise, you know, we think about that fifth day off and prioritising that happier and more fulfilled life for people. You know, what, what do we want to prioritise on those extra days? Because there's there's loads of opportunities to the economy from moving to a four-day week for sectors like the service sector, hospitality, tourism sector, you know, people going on more short breaks around the UK. And thinking about the arts, you know, theatre, music, how are we going to prioritise those parts of our culture on that extra day off? They have, to be fair, been, you know, have suffered over the last decade and suffered mm. during the pandemic as well. How do we design our, our, our weeds so that, you know, those those kind of industries that, that, you know, that enable us to flourish and the things that we really enjoy, how do we, how we, do we design it so it kind of suits most people? And as you say that, Joe, I'm going to pass over to, back to Dom as well in a minute, but I think there's a, there's a key word that even... As internal communicators listening in, even if you're sort of going, look, my management isn't going to buy into that concept right now. They're not ready for it. Mm. You know, the, the shutters are down. But what I think that you what people can tap into and when you, things that you've just talked about is this issue of prioritisation. And we've heard this quite a few times as well on podcasts recently about us as a professional community in terms of how we're, we're advising our leaders, our organisations to, to drive up the right environment to engender the good work and, and the objectives and the goals that the organisation has. But actually for our professional role to be someone that says no is actually to actually listen to the employee, hear that voice, monitor what's going in, put towards that evidence and actually think about how can we help communication be a force for good in the organisation through thinking of things like prioritisation and how are we therefore then measuring whatever our productivity measure is. And that for me is something that is, as a start point as internal communicators is to think about how can my communication advisory work look at helping our organisations understand that, that, that dichotomy and then it helps to move towards that, that argument if that is something. But I think that word of prioritisation is really important as communicators then for us to say, no, they, that's too much stop it's not going to benefit the organization and that was just some of my thoughts i'll um i'll pass back to to dom now okay well thanks jen and thanks joe i mean at this stage it's customary to sort of come into land and i think there are for me three things at least uh, out of what we talked about that hit me which i hadn't really thought about first of all you talked joe about having this debate focuses organizations on output on being more productive and i think that's a fantastic thing to take from this that 
Uh, now, having this conversation is not about people doing less work, far from it. It's about focusing on productivity and how we get there. And I think it's a great way of doing that. I think the second thing is you talked about bottom-up pressure, I suppose. I think that's very interesting because one of the themes of the last few podcasts have been around listening, employee voice, about how people can have more say in what happens within their organisations. And I think what you said there about the importance of people saying we want this and being constructive and having that debate, I think has been really helpful and probably a role that communicators can have, which, which leads me on to the third thing, I think, which is my words, but there is a role from what you said for internal communicators to be facilitators of this conversation. We often have this debate, are communicators servants of the, the, the leaders or are they servants of the individual workers? And I think we tend to come to the, the idea it's, it's a bit of both, to be honest, but part of it is to help people have the debate and facilitate the argument. So those are three things out of many more which you've talked about. So I guess $64,000 question is, from your point of view, Joe, what's the one thing that you would like internal communicators and others working in communication to take away from what we've discussed? I think I think that's it. It's kind of, as you said, you know, have, have the discussion, you know, the, the, the kind of... The, the future of the, the debate around the future of work is kind of open. You know, it's like people are having it everywhere and that conversation has been needed for such a long time. And actually that, you know, that's exciting that that, that conversation has been opened up and yeah, but, you know, it's up to us to shape the world we want to see around us and shape that world of work. And, you know, we want a better world of work coming out of the pandemic. We want to go, we want to move towards something better. And I think for, for quite a long time in this country anyway, things have felt like they've been getting worse. And I think at work as well. And I think the pandemic is, is while it was a tragic time for lots of these obvious reasons, you know, it, it did kind of shake things up and that, and that was needed. And I think, yeah, as, as internal communicators, let's keep having the conversation. You know, if there are barriers in certain areas, what are those barriers? How can we work through them? And, and having those conversations with, you know, with your employees as well, you know, if you are considering, you know, moving to a 40 week, it's also fascinating just to, just to kind of see where people are at and see what people want. So yeah, there's a big conversation happening about the, about the future of work and great to have people involved. Well, Joe, thanks very much for being with us today. I guess people can always come to your website for the four day week campaign as well for further support and help. And uh, perhaps we'll catch up again in a few years time. We'll sort sooner and see uh, where we are. But thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Joe. Okay, thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast episode. If you have, please like it and share it with your friends and colleagues on your preferred digital channels. Every recommendation helps us spread the word to build a better, more connected and inclusive future of work. Thanks for listening.